Well, good morning. All right, so <clears throat> Jesus is in Galilee at the beginning of chapter 7 with one of the major Jewish festivals looming in Jerusalem called the Feast of Booths in verse 2. This was one of the three annual feasts in which Jews pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. The population of the city was about to swell. And according to Jesus' earthly brothers, this was going to be the perfect time to do some signs and wonders to gain more followers. Jesus, though, is on a different type of mission than one of fame. So he does not go to the Feast of Tabernacles in the manner his brothers demanded. John wrote back in 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that refers to Jesus taking on humanity, God with our flesh. But this dwelt among us here in verse 14 is written literally in Greek, pitched his tent. Jesus pitched his tent among us. Any Jew who read these words of John would remember Israel, led by God from Egypt to the land promised. God's presence would settle in a temporary tent on the journey, called a tabernacle. Fast forward to John's gospel, Jesus the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. God has come to his people. Now in John 7, Jesus, the tabernacled one, goes to Jerusalem to join the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate God's provision during those wilderness wanderings. But he's, he does not go the way that his brothers pressured him to go, but secretly and after the feast had already begun. And when he does show himself in the temple, starting in verse 14, he does so not with miraculous signs with teaching. When Jesus teaches in his authoritative way, questions inevitably arise. Like in verse 15, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The crowds marveled at Jesus' teaching according to this verse. So they ask, where did Jesus learn all this? Or where did he get his authority? Essentially, where did Jesus go to school? He then converses and challenges them, leading to the second question. In uh, verses 25 through 27, uh, it features two questions and then a statement from Jesus. If you combine those together, we can make a second question. Where is Jesus from? Jesus responds and provides more teaching through this conversation, and then he's asked a final question. Look at verse 35. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Essentially, they ask, where is Jesus going? Now, all three are excellent questions as they interact with Jesus' teaching, but Jesus answers all three questions in the same way. Where did this man go to school? Heaven with the one who sent him. Where's this man from? Heaven, from the one who sent him. And where is he going? Heaven, back to the one who sent him. 
This third question that is asked of Jesus in verse 35 is based upon what Jesus says in verse 34. He frankly gives a warning in verses 33 and 34, and it's our key verses today. It says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Time is short. Don't wait too long. Jesus will not be available forever. Now with that sober warning in mind, let's return to verse 25 and examine the whole passage. Jesus talks with people present for the feast, and then with those pesky religious leaders, and then he concludes with warning both groups. So part A, the people of Jerusalem, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man who they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The people around him are commenting how he's speaking openly at the feast, wondering that if by speaking the, uh, openly, the authorities have determined that he is the Christ, the Messiah. These people, I think, must be privy to the religious authorities, knowing that the authorities are against Jesus, even wanting to kill him. And this is very different than some verses from last Sunday. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Then look at what they say next in verse 20. The crowd answer, answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd says that Jesus is out of his mind. He must have a demon because he's speaking openly and no one is trying to kill him. But now Jesus is talking to two different audiences. The crowds in general, uh, in verse 20, they are likely pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the feast. But then in verse 25, those who were from the city in Jerusalem. Those who really know the religious leaders in the city. Knowing what they know about the religious leaders and seeing what they see, Jesus speaking openly, the people of Jerusalem consider, can Jesus be the Messiah? The second part of verse 26. The silence of the religious leaders is surprising to them. Here's Jesus. Isn't he supposed to be arrested? Here's your chance. Uh, perhaps our leaders have weighed the evidence, or maybe they have some new evidence that we don't know about. Could this be the Christ? Nah. Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. As quickly as the idea leaves their lips, the people of Jerusalem realize how ridiculous it sounds. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Now, verse 27 is actually really interesting because these people of Jerusalem ask their own questions and then they give their own answers. They squash their own curiosity as they listen to Jesus speak in the temple. A religious leader did not tell them what to think when they asked the question. 
Verse 27 is their own internal assumption spoken. What we have in this verse is actually the first of three popularly held notions of what the Messiah would be like that is mentioned in this chapter. So I interrupt our regular outline for this very important and totally planned sidebar. So let's consider popular expectations of the Messiah in first century Judaism. And scholar D.A. Carson wrote of these in his John commentary. Number one, the Christ would be unknown until he appeared publicly to save Israel. That is verse 27. Some rabbis taught that the Messiah would be totally unknown until he set out to produce salvation for Israel. So, obviously, these people in Jerusalem have been tutored in this position. Because Jesus did not have a grand entrance into the temple, and because they knew his family, they dismissed him. Jesus did not fit the qualifications of this teaching, and we see that assumption working against the people of Jerusalem in verse 27. And this is not addressed in this passage, but the salvation mentioned here probably referred to political salvation from Israel's oppressors, not the spiritual oppressors that Jesus came to address and destroy. So, there's the expectation that the Messiah would appear suddenly to save Israel. A second expectation of the Messiah in the first century is found in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So, uh, second, the Christ will perform miraculous signs when he appears. Some people are believing in Jesus because of the signs that he's doing. The sign that Jesus did in chapter 5 is mentioned specifically here in chapter 7, in verses 21 and following. It was a sign because Jesus healed a paralyzed man of 38 years, but it was controversial because he did it on the Sabbath, when all were supposed to be resting. So in John's gospel, Jesus does very few public signs, but the other gospel writers narrate many more miracles. In fact, a crowd said something very similar after Jesus heals a demon-possessed man afflicted with blindness and muteness in Matthew 12, verse 23. And all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? When John the Baptist sat in prison and began to doubt that Jesus was the promised Messiah, he sent messengers to Jesus to clarify. Jesus didn't answer John with a yes or a no, but answered him this way in Luke 7, 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. The Messiah was expected to have the power of God, and his coming would be evidenced by miraculous signs like these. Now, for the third expectation of who the Messiah would be, I'm stealing from next week's sermon in verse 42. Has not the scripture 
said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So, number three, the Christ will be the descendant of David and be born in Bethlehem. So they quote their scripture accurately because Micah 5.2 does say that the Christ will come from Bethlehem when it reads, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This is the same conclusion that the chief priests and scribes assembled by Herod came to as well in Matthew chapter 2, around the time of Jesus' birth. He was to be born in Bethlehem. And the temple records would have attested that Jesus is from the line of David. Both Mary and Joseph were uh, David's descendants. But as far as these people were concerned, Jesus was from Galilee, according to verse 41, so he could not be the Messiah. But more on that next week. Also, I want to point out that this third expectation somewhat clashes with the first one. Some people are expecting a sudden appearance and declaration of salvation from the Messiah, and some people are expecting to know him, his family, and where he's from. So we should not be surprised when we read in verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Now with this sidebar, I want you to see what was influencing the Jews in the first century concerning the Messiah. And sadly, rather than consensus, these expectations created divisions among the people. This is the environment in which Jesus tabernacled himself. Some are seeking a sudden appearance. Some are seeking to personally know a descendant of David from Bethlehem. Some are seeking powerful signs, and yet Jesus is the one that comes to them at the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's uh, continue this conversation. In verse 27, the people of Jerusalem say they know where Jesus is from. Let's pick up in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. Now, let's stop. It appears that Jesus acknowledges that they are on the right track. But look over at John 8:19. They said to him, "Therefore, where is your father?" Jesus answered, "You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also." So in these two verses, he says something totally opposite. And the setting is the same. Chapter 8, he is also still at the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus is talking to the same people, yet saying two different things. So they know Jesus, and they don't know Jesus. Which one is it? Alistair Begg pointed this out to me, and I, I love Alistair Begg. What's missing in this verse is tone of voice. Jesus was a real person talking to real people. This was a real conversation. We can't, what we can't read from these words on our page is irony. So they say, oh yeah, we know where this man comes from. But I say, Jesus is not a robot. You know me, 
and you know where I come from. Try again. Oh yeah, we know where Jesus, where this man comes from. You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now them are fighting words. Jesus just told some Jews whose lives are centered around knowing God that they do not know God. D.A. Carson wrote that the Jews prided themselves in knowing God and prided themselves in receiving the law personally from God, yet Jesus reveals their ignorance. You don't know me. You don't know where I come from. You don't know God because I come from God. Jesus says in verse 28 that he does not come on his own accord, so he doesn't come on his own authority. He doesn't come on his own mission. He comes from God, he says in verse 29. So Jesus is the litmus test if someone knows God or not. He says in verse 28, he who sent me is true. Carson again writes that Jesus is not referring to God as true in the sense of faithful, but true in the sense of real. Of course, the Jews would accept that God is real and that he exists, but Jesus is affirming that as real as God is, Jesus is really from God. So Jesus says, he who sent me is real, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now again, those are fighting words, and this creates a division among the people in verses 30 and 31. Some seek to arrest him, and some believe in him because of his signs. But this apparently spontaneous plot fails because it reads, his hour had not yet come, which is a common refrain of John throughout the gospel. So John writes this, I think, to add suspense, but also to let his readers know that's, that what's coming is coming. It's just coming in God's timing. Next, the conversation shifts to be the religious leaders. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, this action to arrest him, I think, is the result of mounting pressure. Look back at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? Jesus is not even in Jerusalem yet, but many are expecting and hoping for him to come. Verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus was the topic of conversation, even though people were divided about him, but in closed groups, not openly. It appears that the religious leaders are trying to keep a lid on Jesus. They don't want him to be the focus of the feast. But then, of course, Jesus arrives in the temple with more teaching, 
and uh, that secret muttering becomes more open. He's there, so he's being talked about more openly. And then the leaders hear that whiff of faith in verse 31. Will the Messiah really do more signs than this man? So now is the time to sign the arrest warrant. Jesus must be removed. Now, for some background, they, they send these officers, which are under the authority of these religious leaders. Their normal responsibility to, was uh, to re- maintain order in the temple. So they're kind of like the temple police force. Rather than arresting him straight away, they don't appear again until verse 45. So instead, we have more statements from Jesus. Part C, Jesus' warning. <clears throat> Jesus' warning. Verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So Jesus' time with them was literally short. The events of John 6 occurred in the spring at Passover, and the events of John 7 occurred at Tabernacles in autumn about six months later. So by the time the next Passover rolls around, he will die by being nailed to a cross, resurrect to life, and return to heaven shortly after. So when he says in verse 33 that he will be with them a little longer, he means it. Just six months. So then Jesus warns them in verse 34, maybe uh, talking to the religious leaders, maybe even to the people in Jerusalem as well, But it appears that his warning sticks with them because they ask each other in verse 35 what he means. They even offer a possible answer and then they repeat their questions in verse 36. Apparently their proposal of Jesus going outside of Israel proper to teach Greek-speaking Jews in another part of the Roman Empire was not a satisfactory answer because they ask, What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Now, Jesus has already plainly told them where he's from and where he's going. But they didn't accept what he said. So he told them plainly in verse 28 that they don't know God, the one who sent him. And if they don't accept Jesus and they don't know God, then verse 34 is true. Where I am... You cannot come. In a sermon that John MacArthur preached, he said we should read verses 33 and 34 with a tone of sadness. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. There's a finality coming. Jesus will not be there to debate and challenge for much longer. The time is now for believing in him. 
Now, Jesus gives a similar warning to his disciples in his last of five sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of ten bridesmaids with their oil lamps. They're waiting for the groom to come to take them to the wedding feast, but the groom was delayed, so they fell asleep. Shouts stirred them from sleep, and we learn that some of the bridesmaids have been foolish because they did not bring more oil for their lamps. They can't go out to meet the groom. They can't travel with him to the feast because their oil has burned down. It's the middle of the night, so they can't see in the dark, and they can't find the groom. So they scramble to buy more oil, and while they're gone, of course, the groom comes and takes the wise bridesmaids who packed enough oil to the wedding feast. Now, the foolish bridesmaids come later. Um, after the feast has begun, now that their lamps are burning again, but the door is shut and they cannot get inside. It's too late for them. The groom is no longer accessible. Time is short. Jesus is not available forever. There will be people like these foolish bridesmaids who seek him too late, as Jesus prophesies here in John 7, 34. You will seek me, and you will not find me. They were too late. Jesus closes that parable in Matthew 25, 13 with, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Today is the day. Seek him while he may be found. This warning is for all those living in their sin. For all those who haven't committed to live for Jesus and not for themselves. For those on the fence. For those considering the spiritual claims of Jesus. Or for those who have no interest in spiritual things. Jesus is accessible today. But for how long? I don't know. Seek Jesus while he may be found. Now we prepare for communion. This is a time for God's people. Those who have sought Jesus. Those who have committed their lives to Jesus. This is a time to celebrate and remember that Jesus endured when his time came for the cross. So we close with part D, Jesus' promise. I'm in a discipleship group, and we're studying through Greg Ogden's book, Discipleship Essentials. Just a few days ago, we were discussing the chapter on trust. What is trust? What does it mean to trust God? So part of that core truth on trust reads this. Christians plug into the power of the Holy Spirit and set off on a risky adventure to follow wherever Jesus Christ leads. Following Jesus is a risky adventure, which stood out to me. It's risky because Christians are called to live for the end, for where we're going, not for the now. So that involves denying yourself the world's short-term gratifications of the present for the delayed, the true gratification and satisfaction promised in the future. That's a risk. 
And trusting Jesus is a risky adventure because we are called to take risks for others to learn and know of the good news about Jesus, not live lives of ease and comfort. So maybe some of us need to remind ourselves that the Christian life is a risky adventure. The risks of the present find their payout in where the adventure leads. John 7, 34 is a blunt warning. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. But this verse has an opposite. John 14, 3. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I was jamming out to some rich Mullins uh, this past week, and I'll spare myself the embarrassment of singing these words. Uh, that's not part of my risky adventure, okay? But listen to the lyrics. I've come down from the Father. It's time for me to go back up. That where I am, there you may also be. Up where the truth, the truth will set you free. In the world you will have trouble, but I'm leaving you my peace. That where I am, there you may also be. By the time that song came out, those words were actually true for Rich Mullins. He was with Jesus. That where I am, you may also be. And there's only one way for us to get there. Jesus had to come and tabernacle himself with us. He had to reject temptation to gratify himself. He had to do that every day for years. He had, to re, um, he had to live his entire life without sin. He had to serve and sacrifice his own life as a payment for the sins of others. So when we celebrate communion, we remember Jesus' body broken by eating the broken bread. And we remember Jesus' blood poured by drinking the poured juice. Our trust is his in his sacrifice removes our sin from us and we embark on a risky adventure after him. Because Jesus rose from death and went back to the one who sent him, Jesus' promise and his warning will soon come to fruition. Follow him while he may be found, that where he is, you may also be. Let's pray as our deacons come forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming down from the Father. We thank you that you came down not for yourself, but on a rescue mission. We were stuck and content in our sins. We didn't know which way was up or down, but you came down so we could go up. Thank you for your grace. And as we reflect on it today, Lord, I pray that even some would do what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. You will seek me and you will find me. Because when you seek me with all your heart, I pray that we would seek you with all of our heart, Lord. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.